Greetings in the name of our Lord and Savior, Jesus the Christ. Welcome to today's broadcast of The Bible Stands. It's a real privilege to come into your home or your car or your place of business with this message from God's Word. We're involved in a study of the third chapter of Genesis. I call this study The Descent of Man. Let's open today's message by reading Genesis chapter 3, verses 10 through 15. And he said, I heard thy voice in the garden, and I was afraid, because I was naked, and I hid myself. And he said, Who told thee that thou was naked? Hast thou eaten of the tree whereof I commanded thee that thou shouldest not eat? And the man said, The woman whom thou gavest to be with me, she gave me of the tree, and I did eat. And the Lord God said unto the woman, What is this that thou hast done? And the woman said, The serpent beguiled me, and I did eat. And the Lord God said unto the serpent, Because thou hast done this, thou art cursed above all cattle, and above every beast of the field. Upon thy belly shalt thou go, and dust shalt thou eat all the days of thy life. And I will put enmity between thee and the woman, and between thy seed and her seed. It shall bruise thy head, and thou shalt bruise his heel. The moment our first parents tasted the fruit of the tree of the knowledge of good and evil, they died a spiritual death. Spiritual death is separation from God, and the transgression of this man and woman separated them from the one who was their creator. The physical manifestation of their spiritual death was a sudden awareness of the nakedness of their bodies and a desire to hide from the presence of the Lord God. They sewed fig leaves together and made themselves aprons to provide cover for those naked bodies that were no longer covered by the glory covering of their former innocence. However, they realized that these fig leaf garments, the works of their own hands, were inadequate to hide their naked bodies, the visible testimony of their transgression, from God. Therefore, when they heard the voice of the Lord God, God the Son, the pre-incarnate Christ, walking in the garden in the cool of the day, they hid themselves in the midst of the trees of the garden. They would have been content to have forever remained hidden from the presence of this one who daily walked in the garden in the visible form of a man to commune and fellowship with them. But he, the Lord God, although completely aware of the transgression of this first human pair, was not content to let them go their own way until that condition of spiritual death was forever confirmed by the inevitable physical death that was now their destiny. It was in grace that the Lord God called to them, Where art thou? So then the man and woman stood before this divine personage, their naked bodies being scarcely covered by those fig leaf aprons. It was in this state and condition of things that the man Adam offered his feeble excuse for hiding from the presence of the Lord God rather than coming out to meet him as he had done in the past. I heard thy voice in the garden, and I was afraid because I was naked, and I hid myself. The very excuse itself stands in condemnation of Adam. This is similar to the case of a young lady who had just been stopped by a traffic officer for going through a red light. As an excuse for this one violation of the law, she said, I saw the red light and I wanted to stop, but I was driving so fast that I just not, could not do it. As an excuse for his conduct in hiding himself, Adam called attention to the visible manifestation of his greater sin. I was naked and I hid myself. In other words, I knew that I was not fit for your presence, so I elected to remove myself from it. The next question of God the Son directed itself to the very source of the problem. The wording of the question demanded that Adam make full confession of his transgression. Who told thee that thou wast naked? 
Hast thou eaten of the tree whereof I commanded thee that thou shouldest not eat? In his state of innocence, before he had tasted the fruit of the tree of the knowledge of good and evil, Adam was incapable of discerning the nakedness of his physical body. The earlier covering of the body was spiritual, not physical. But the physical eyes of the first man and woman were not capable of penetrating the spiritual coverings that God had provided for them until those eyes were opened at the loss of their innocence. The only possible ways in which Adam could know that his body was naked were, first, if some person who had knowledge of good and evil had communicated this information to him, or, second, if he had eaten of the fruit of the tree and had obtained the knowledge of good and evil for himself. The first possibility is denied by the circumstances. The Lord God went on to ask Adam directly, Hast thou eaten of the tree whereof I commanded thee that thou shouldest not eat? In the face of this direct question, Adam did not try to deny his guilt. But he did try to lessen his own responsibility for the moral transgression by directing the blame first to his wife, but ultimately to God himself. And the man said, Thy woman whom thou gavest to be with me, she gave me of the tree, and I did eat. Notice the evidences of Adam's fallen nature in this answer to the Lord God's question where only a short time before he, with full knowledge of God's commandment not to eat of the fruit, and with full realization that to eat of the fruit meant certain death, had chosen to join his wife in separation from God rather than to be separated from her, he now tried to shift the blame for his own transgression to her. He went even further than that. He tried to shift the blame to the Lord God himself. The woman whom thou gavest to be with me she gave me of the tree and I did eat. Adam made the inference that since the Lord God was the one who had formed the woman and had given her to him, that he, God, must share a portion of the blame for Adam's sin since it was the woman who prompted it. This has been a characteristic of the fallen nature of unregenerate man all down through the centuries from the time of Adam to the present. Man still likes to say, God made me and he made me the way I am. If I am evil, then it's his fault. There would be no such thing as evil if God had not made it. God will just have to accept me as I am. This attitude of fallen man began with Adam himself. Adam did not want to accept moral responsibility for a transgression that he had committed by his own choice, by his own will, under circumstances in which he had a clear moral choice. So even though Adam made a confession of wrongdoing, he did not at this point accept full responsibility for his act. He wanted to blame his wife, and he wanted to blame God. But this did not change the facts, just as Paul later wrote, For Adam was first formed, then Eve, and Adam was not deceived, but the woman being deceived was in the transgression. Adam's part in the transgression was worse than that of his wife, because he was not deceived. He was clearly cognizant of the true facts as he made a choice for willful disobedience of God's commandment. The woman had been confused by the tempter. She was not clearly cognizant of the true facts. Although she was in the transgression, her moral responsibility for it was not as great as that of Adam. Adam could not pass the buck. It was his own decision to violate God's law. The woman could not shoulder Adam's blame the serpent couldn't shoulder Adam's blame, and God could not shoulder Adam's blame. Adam himself was guilty of sin against God, and, as judge, the Lord God, God the Son, 
must pronounce judgment on all those involved in this entrance of sin into the earthly sphere. However, Adam's statement did implicate the woman, his wife, over whom he had headship. So before dealing with Adam, the Lord God turned to the woman with the words, What is this that thou hast done? The woman also was not willing to accept full blame for her actions. She admitted her guilt, but she also implicated the serpent, the beast whose body the fallen angel Satan had occupied so that he might communicate with the woman on the physical plane by exposing his part in the transgression. And the woman said, The serpent beguile me, and I did eat. To a degree, the woman's guilt was lessened by the temptation of the serpent because he had truly managed to confuse the issue for her. Yet she was aware that she would be disobeying her creator when she tasted the fruit. Therefore, she was not guiltless. As the woman implicated the serpent, the Lord God now turned to him. God was fully aware of all the things that the man and the woman had told him even before they spoke. He was fully aware of those proceedings before he had ever created the universe and before he had ever created those creatures that were involved in this sin against him. But he still exacted full confession from both the man and the woman before he pronounced judgment upon the participants in that first earthly sin and upon their domain. However, notice that the Lord God did not exact a confession from the serpent, who was the physical representation of Satan. Satan is a fallen angel, and God's plan of redemption does not include the angels who have sinned. Satan was forever confirmed in his state of wickedness and evil from the moment he set his will against that of God. Confession and truthfulness from this evil being are impossibilities. He was a murderer from the beginning, and abode not in the truth, because there is no truth in him. When he speaketh a lie, he speaketh of his own, for he is a liar and the father of it. Therefore, the Lord God did not solicit a comment from this wicked spirit personality. He simply pronounced judgment upon him. And, though this judgment was directed primarily toward the spirit personality which occupied the body of the animal, a portion of it was directed to the animal himself. This fact seems to imply that the reptile had the power to resist the possession of his body by Satan, but he failed to exercise that power. The words that the Lord God spoke to the serpent are of tremendous significance because they form the outline of the history of God's future dealings with this fallen creation. The Lord God specified that the future history of this universe will be marked by a continuing struggle between this being, who is the very personification of evil and wickedness, and the coming seed of woman, who is to oppose him. However, when the seed of woman comes into the human sphere, he will defeat the great adversary. The head of the serpent is to be crushed, but the heel of the seed of woman will be bruised in the process. I see that my time is gone for today. We'll continue with our study of the descent of man on the next broadcast, exactly where we leave off today. Welcome to today's broadcast of the Independent Faith Ministry of the Bible Stands. We're involved in a study of Genesis chapter 3. I call this study the descent of man. Let's open today's message by reading Genesis chapter 3, verses 14 through 16. And the Lord God said unto the serpent, Because thou hast done this, thou art cursed above all cattle, and above every beast of the field. Upon thy belly shalt thou go, and dust shalt thou eat all the days of thy life. And I will put enmity between thee and the woman, and between thy seed and her seed. It shall bruise thy head, 
and thou shalt bruise his heel. Unto the woman he said, I will greatly multiply thy sorrow and thy conception. In sorrow shalt thou bring forth children, and thy desire shall be to thy husband, and he shall rule over thee. The first part of this judgment is directed toward the physical animal himself, toward that lowly, cold-blooded beast that permitted Satan to use his body for the physical encounter with the woman. The Lord God told him that it was because that he was a part of this original entrance of sin into the earthly sphere that he is to be cursed above all cattle. Because thou hast done this, it was because this animal had permitted himself to become the tool of Satan, because he had not resisted the possession of his body, because he had become involved in this evil business, that the Lord God caused certain physiological changes to come upon this animal. He was to have an estate in the earth that was lower than that of all those domesticated animals that God created to serve man as beasts of burden, and eventually, after the great flood, to serve man as food. Upon thy belly shalt thou go. To emphasize the lowly position to be held by the serpent among the beasts of the earth, he was, from that time forth, to move himself directly upon his belly, right down in the dust of the ground. To symbolize his lowly position in the earth, the Lord God caused the legs of the serpent to be removed. To provide a means of locomotion for this legless animal, the Lord God caused the muscles of the lower belly to be changed into a means of driving his body forward over the surface of the ground. God's word informs us that God himself made this physiological change in the body of the animal at the very moment that judgment was pronounced. Upon thy belly shalt thou go, and dust shalt thou ingest all the days of thy life. The new means of locomotion provided for the serpent would bring his mouth and nostrils right down into the dust of the ground. He would ingest this dust into his system as he went on his way. The serpent at that moment became the lowly snake. Since his body had been used of Satan in the temptation, then he himself became the symbol of Satan. The effects of the Lord God's pronouncement on the serpent are still with us today. Although the changes made in the serpent's body were literal and physical changes, they do have a figurative meaning. The serpent's lowly lot in the earth symbolizes the status and the ultimate defeat of Satan in this present imperfect universe. Satan is a lowly evil being, but he has the power to bruise a heel and inject the poison of his evil nature into the unwary man or woman. But he's down in the dust where his head may be crushed by that heel that he bruises. Our attention is next turned to the second part of the Lord God's pronouncement, which is not directed toward that physical beast, but rather toward the evil spirit personality that inhabited the serpent's body. And I will put enmity between thee and the woman, and between thy seed and her seed. It, he, shall bruise thy head, and thou shalt bruise his heel. This is one of the most significant verses in all scripture. Although these words were spoken to the serpent, they opened a gleam of hope for the fallen human race. The Lord God made a promise that sets the theme of all of the subsequent revelation of God's word. Although the promise is partially veiled, the significance of the Lord God's words is not to be overlooked. The promise is that at some future time, one will come into the world who will crush the head of the serpent and therefore release the world and the human race from his enslavement. The one who is coming 
to do this is referred to as the seed of woman. Note carefully, it is not the seed of man, but rather the seed of woman. The one who is coming into the world to crush the head of Satan will not be begotten by a human father, but rather he will be virgin born. His tie to the human race will be through the woman, not the man. The coming seed of woman will have the power to destroy the serpent and to undo the damage that the poison of sin from this venomous beast has done. He will crush the serpent's head and therefore render him harmless. But in the process of the serpent's defeat, he will succeed in bruising the heel of that coming seed of woman. That is, he will inject the poison of death into the heel of the seed of woman. That one will have to die in order to accomplish the serpent's defeat. Genesis 3.15 has become known as the Proto-Evangel. It is the earliest prophecy that relates to the coming of a Savior in human form to undo the damage caused by Satan's wiles and that relates to the undoing of the resulting damage caused by the entrance of sin into the human sphere. This prophecy was made by the Lord God himself. It was made by the very person who was to himself take on human flesh to crush the head of the serpent. There was to be continuing enmity between the serpent and the woman and between offspring of these two beings for perpetual generations. There was to be enmity between the physical animal and the woman and this was to stand symbolically for the continuing spiritual enmity between the evil angel Satan and the woman and her offspring. Satan would continue to do all within his power to totally degrade all womanhood and he would continue to do all within his power to prevent the birth of or to take the life of that particular branch of her seed that was to lead to the promised one. Subsequent biblical revelation of the early history of the earth proves that Satan did just that. But the promise of the Lord God was that he, Satan, would not be successful. That specific seed of woman was to be born into the world and he would crush the head of the serpent. In so doing, he would achieve victory over death, both over spiritual death and over physical death. Although this promise of the Lord God made there in the judgment scene in the Garden of Eden is veiled in the symbolism of the physical situation, its general meaning is quite clear. Adam and the woman understood that even though both their physical position in the earth and their spiritual position before God was to change drastically as a result of their sin, God, in His grace, had made a promise that their condition was not hopeless. He had previously said, In the day that thou eatest thereof, dying, thou shalt die. The man and the woman were spiritually dead. They both were destined to die physically. The wages of sin is death. However, the Lord God promised that the seed of woman was to crush the head of the serpent's seed. The serpent's seed is death. The Lord God himself was to come into the earthly sphere in the form of the seed of woman. His heel was to be bruised by the serpent. He would himself die so that fallen men might live. He himself would pay the wages of sin. A bright gleam of hope had come into that dark scene of judgment there in the Garden of Eden. The Lord God, the giver of life in the original creation, was willing to reach out in grace and provide a means whereby the seed of the human race might once again receive that spiritual life which had been lost. After those most significant words to the serpent, the Lord God then turned to the woman. Unto the woman, he said, Multiplying, I will multiply thy trouble and thy conception. In pain thou shalt bring forth children, 
and unto thy husband shall be thy longing, and he shall rule over thee. This is a literal rendering of the original Hebrew. Just as the penalty pronounced against the serpent had brought immediate physiological changes to his body, also the penalty pronounced against the woman brought immediate physiological changes to her body. Multiplying, I will multiply thy pain and thy conception. These physiological changes in the woman's body were primarily related to her reproductive system. The woman's body, as it was originally formed, was designed for the bearing of children. A part of God's original instructions to man was, be fruitful and multiply and fill the earth. However, before the Lord God brought the changes that are mentioned here, the design of the female body was apparently such that children could be brought into the world with only minor discomfort. Also, the frequency of the time periods during which she was capable of conceiving a child was apparently much lower. Since man, in his state of innocence, was incapable of physical death, it was not necessary that the individual women of the human race each bear great numbers of children in order to accomplish God's will for populating the earth. The ovulation cycle of the woman's body was much slower than the average 28-day cycle that's the present state of things. Perhaps it was, as it was originally created, the woman's body produced an egg only once per year rather than once per month. The cycle could have been even slower than that. This is what the latter words of the first part of the Lord God's statement seem to imply. He said, Multiplying, I will multiply thy pain and thy conception. In pain shalt thou bring forth children. The word multiply implies that there was a degree of pain in childbirth and a degree of the possibility of conception present in the woman's body even before the changes were made. But when the Lord God multiplied these things, then the degree of both was greatly increased. Where previously the birth of a child was to bring only minor discomfort, now it was to result in tremendous pain and discomfort. Where previously the ability to conceive a child came at very long intervals, perhaps six months, a year, or more, now that ability came regularly each month. The Lord God said that he would multiply both the pain and the conception. Before this pronouncement in the garden, the woman probably would have borne only one child in an interval of several years, perhaps in a decade or more, but now she was capable of bearing one child per year, or even slightly more than a child per year on the long-term average. The woman's body underwent changes as drastic as those that came upon the serpent. My time is gone for today. We'll continue the study of the descent of man on the next broadcast. So glad of this opportunity to come into your home with another broadcast of The Bible Stands. We're studying the third chapter of Genesis in a series of messages that I call The Descent of Man. Let me read Genesis chapter 3, verses 16 through 19. Unto the woman, he said, I will greatly multiply thy sorrow and thy conception. In sorrow thou shalt bring forth children, and thy desire shall be to thy husband, and he shall rule over thee. And unto Adam he said, Because thou hast hearkened unto the voice of thy wife, and hast eaten of the tree of which I commanded thee, saying, Thou shalt not eat of it, cursed is the ground for thy sake. In sorrow shalt thou eat of it all the days of thy life. Thorns also, and thistles shall it bring forth to thee, and thou shalt eat the herb of the field. In the sweat of thy face shalt thou eat bread, till thou return unto the ground. For out of it wast thou taken, for dust thou art and unto dust shalt thou return. 
As we noted on the last broadcast, the Lord God caused the woman's body to undergo changes as drastic as those that came upon the body of the serpent. But this is not all the changes that the Lord God brought about. There were also changes made in the woman's emotional characteristics. And unto thy husband shall be thy longing, or, as our English translation puts it, and thy desire shall be to thy husband. The woman's emotional nature was changed to give her a psychological dependence upon that one man who was her husband. Her emotional nature was to be such as to give her an intensified emotional attachment to and a longing for her husband. The intensification of this part of her nature prepared her for the subordinate role in the leadership of the family unit that the Lord God had ordained for her. The temptation of the woman had occurred in the absence of her husband. This first woman had been beguiled by the tempter, and she had transgressed. The presence of her husband, the first created of the pair, would most likely have strengthened the woman so that she would not have been confused by the serpent's words. So, in the pronouncement, the Lord God said unto her, And to the, unto thy husband shall be thy longing. This part of the Lord God's pronouncement also intensified the sexual desire that the woman had toward her husband. The more strenuous requirements of childbirth and the greater frequency of the possible conception might cause the woman to rebel against the will of God through her avoidance of physical contact with her husband. But the Lord God intensified her desire for such physical contact. He said, And thy desire shall be to thy husband. After these physical and emotional changes were made to the body and to the nature of the woman, the Lord God then placed her in a subordinate role to her husband. Notice it was the Lord God himself who ordained the relationship of the two sexes in marriage. Speaking of the man, he told the woman, And he shall rule over thee. Present movements that would upset the traditional role of the sexes in the marriage relationship are going counter to this primeval commandment of the Lord God. And then the Lord God turned to the man. He turned to the federal head of the human race, to the one who held the greatest moral guilt in this original transgression. And unto Adam he said, Because thou hast hearkened unto the voice of thy wife, and hast eaten of the tree of which I commanded thee, saying, Thou shalt not eat of it. In this opening statement, the Lord God brought the true nature of Adam's transgression clearly into the foreground. Adam had made a clear choice for disobedience to God. Because thou hast hearkened unto the voice of thy wife, and hast eaten of the tree of which I commanded thee, saying, Thou shalt not eat of it, cursed is the ground for thy sake. Adam had been given dominion over the earth. When he disobeyed God and followed the leading of the tempter through the voice of his wife, he had transferred his allegiance from the Lord God to Satan. Satan became sovereign over Adam's dominion. Not only Adam was affected by sin, but his whole dominion, the earth, and all of those parts of the physical universe that interact with the earth, was also affected by it. With the coming of spiritual death to the man Adam, physical death was also his inevitable destiny. Physical death was also the destiny of Adam's dominion. The principle of death came into the physical creation because of Adam's sin. The Apostle Paul tells us this in Romans chapter 5 and verse 12. Wherefore, as by one man sin entered into the world, and death, the principle of death, 
by sin, and so death passed upon all men, for that all have sinned. As the Lord God spoke to Adam in the Garden of Eden, he said, Cursed is the ground, the earth, for thy sake. The Hebrew word that's translated ground here in Genesis 3.17 is the same word that's translated earth in other passages. Therefore the Lord God was speaking of all of Adam's dominion when he said, Cursed is the earth for thy sake. Not only had death become a principle of Adam's body, but death had become a principle of the very dust of the ground out of which Adam's body was made. The basic law of the universe became a law of deterioration, a law of decay, a law of death. The Apostle Paul was speaking of the principle of this curse that God pronounced upon the physical universe when, in Romans chapter 8, verse 22, he wrote, For we know that the whole creation groaneth and travaileth in pain together until now. The writer of Psalm 102 also spoke of this principle of decay and death when he, speaking to God, said, Of old hast thou laid the foundations of the earth, and the heavens are the work of thy hands. They shall perish, but thou shalt endure. Yea, all of them shall wax old like a garment. As a vesture shalt thou change them, and they shall be changed. All of Adam's dominion, according to Scripture, is under the curse of death. God's Word says that our physical universe is now governed by a principle of decay and deterioration. That principle will eventually cause the death of that which is created. Now here at last is a declaration of God's word, the effects of which should be detectable in the realm of physical science. If one of the basic laws of the universe includes a principle of decay and death, then physical scientists should be aware of that principle. The question is, is there a principle of deterioration that is basic to the laws that determine the behavior of the physical universe? The answer is a resounding yes. The entire creation is governed by a law of deterioration, of decay, of death. The physical universe, as it was originally created, was perfect. Everything was in order, everything functioned perfectly, and everything was designed to last forever. During the six-day creation period, God himself, using processes that only he knows, created energy. He integrated this created energy into all of the heavenly bodies that form a dynamic and functioning universe. At the end of God's work of the first six days, everything was in order. The mature universe, with all of its intricate motions and interrelationships, which ranged from the subnuclear to the galactical, was in perfect operating order. Therefore, when God ceased his creative work and rested on the seventh day, everything that he had made was designed to endure forever. In spite of this, the physical universe as we know it today is not destined to endure forever. This universe is dying. If time goes on sufficiently long, and if there is no intervention on the part of the Creator, our universe will eventually die a heat death. Everything in the physical universe will at some time in the extended future reach a state of thermal equilibrium, a state in which no future useful work is possible. In this state, the universe can no longer function. It will be one conglomerate of energy, all at the same potential, all completely useless as far as sustaining the present order of things. There is a universal law of death that hangs over the physical domain. If nothing is done to change this law, then it will eventually win out over the entire creation. We all sense this state of affairs, and to a degree we resent it. 
We know that nothing in the earth can long endure if it is not constantly sustained by effort external to the thing itself. Things wear out. Iron rusts. Wood decays. Paint peels and cracks. Atoms decay. Machinery wears out and runs down. Living things grow old and die. Nothing in the physical domain endures forever. In a very real sense, this state of things seems to be at variance with the concept of a perfect universe created by a perfect God. And it is. The universe as we observe it and experience it today is not in the original state of perfection in which God created it. It was a perfect universe at the end of the sixth creation day. We are told, and God saw everything that he had made, and behold, it was very good. It remained a perfect universe for some unspecified period of time. It was a perfect universe during the interval of time when the first man Adam and his wife dwelt in innocence in the Garden of Eden and their fellowship with the Son of God as he walked in the garden in the cool of the day. It remained a perfect universe until the Lord God, God the Son, spoke those words that are found in Genesis 3.17, Cursed is the ground, the earth, for thy sake. The law of death, which ruled over Adam, was also to rule over his entire dominion. The law of death became a part of that whole creation. The law of death has ruled over the physical creation since that very moment. Just how does the law of death rule over the physical creation? Physical scientists have been able only vaguely to understand this law for about a century. However, they've been able to see how it extends to everything in the physical universe only for about the last 50 years. Physicists have, during modern times, come to know that the basic entity of the universe is that entity which we call energy. It's been known for some time that energy can exist in many different forms, light, heat, chemical, mechanical, nuclear, and so forth. It's also known that energy changes forms, and in each change, energy accomplishes useful work. In fact, it's the energy exchange processes that are going on constantly that sustain the universe. By experimental measurements, it's been found that there are just two basic laws that have always been obeyed when energy undergoes a change of form. There has never been an observed exception to either of these laws. The early experimental scientists designated these two laws as the first and second laws of thermodynamics. My time is gone for today. We'll consider the universal law of death and decay that God pronounced on Adam's dominion as we continue this study of the descent of man on the next broadcast. so good to greet you in the name of our Lord Jesus Christ, our Savior and our Redeemer. Welcome to another broadcast of the Bible Stands. We're continuing our study of Genesis chapter 3. I've entitled this series of messages, The Descent of Man. Let me open today's message by reading Genesis chapter 3, verses 17 through 19. And unto Adam he said, because thou hast hearkened unto the voice of thy wife, and hast eaten of the tree of which I commanded thee, saying, Thou shalt not eat of it. Cursed is the ground for thy sake. In sorrow shalt thou eat of it all the days of thy life. Thorns also and thistles shall it bring forth to thee, and thou shalt eat the herb of the field. In the sweat of thy face shalt thou eat bread, till thou return unto the ground. For out of it wast thou taken. For dust thou art, and unto dust shalt thou return. On the last broadcast, we were considering the two most basic physical laws of the universe and how they relate to creation and to God's curse on Adam's domain. These two laws are known technically as the first and second laws of thermodynamics. The first law of thermodynamics is a law of conservation. 
In fact, it's called the Law of Ener Energy Conservation. This law states that in any energy exchange process, no energy is lost or gained. There is precisely the same quantity of energy in the new forms as there was in the old form. No energy is lost, no energy is gained. The total quantity remains exactly the same. The first law of thermodynamics says energy cannot be created or destroyed. We could find out exactly when the first law of thermodynamics became a part of the physical creation if we were to restudy the first three verses of Genesis chapter 2. These verses read, Thus the heavens and the earth were finished, and all the host of them. And on the seventh day God ended his energy, which he had made, and he rested on the seventh day from all his energy, which he had made. And God blessed the seventh day and sanctified it, because that in it he had rested from all his energy, which God had created and made. I've translated the Hebrew word melaka as energy rather than work. This is actually the real meaning of the word. This record tells us that during the six-day creation period, God himself did create energy by creative powers that only he possesses. When the universe was complete, he ceased to create energy. One of the sustaining laws of the universe became energy cannot be created or destroyed. Man observes and measures this principle, and he calls it the first law of thermodynamics. The second law of thermodynamics is a law of decay. It's a law of death. Physical scientists have observed that in any energy exchange process, although no energy is lost or gained, a portion of the energy involved in the process becomes unavailable to do further useful work. As energy goes from one form to another, it becomes less ordered, less organized. That is, it goes to a lower potential. In other words, the energy that does exist is constantly wearing out. This is an irreversible process, and eventually all the energy of the physical universe is going to be reduced to the same state of disorganization. The universe will die. Just how important is this dying energy to our universe? This physical universe is made of nothing but energy. The very materials of the universe are nothing but energy in its many special forms. All the energy that's locked together in the atoms that form material things is subject to the same irreversible toll of the second law of thermodynamics, just as is the energy that exists in the form of light, heat, and so forth. The second law of thermodynamics is the principle that is responsible for decay, for wearing out, for aging, and for death. The second law of thermodynamics is the physical manifestation of the curse that the Lord God placed upon Adam's domain. In the second and third chapters of Genesis, we have not only the statement of, but also the origin and the explanation of the two most basic laws of science. The Bible should be our textbook of science. The curse on Adam's domain is very much a part of this present creation. The effects of this curse are greatly in evidence on every hand. The second law of thermodynamics is never cheated. It exacts its penalty on every process of the physical universe. Nothing in the present creation is 100% efficient. Within every process, there's a loss. We must wait for the new creation before we'll see the repeal of this law of decay and death. But that repeal will come. 
the aged Apostle John tells us of those things that were revealed to him while he was in exile on the Isle of Patmos. In Revelation chapter 22 and verse 3, speaking of the new earth and the new Jerusalem, he writes, And there shall be no more curse. However, there in the Garden of Eden, the Lord God said unto Adam, Cursed is the earth for thy sake. In sorrow shalt thou eat of it all the days of thy life. Thorns also, and thistles, shall it bring forth to thee. And thou shalt eat the herb of the field. In the sweat of thy face shalt thou eat bread, till thou return unto the ground. The entire physical creation was brought under the same law of death that was upon Adam. Dying, thou shalt die. In sorrow, or in pain, shalt thou eat of it all the days of thy life. Where previously the earth had freely yielded all that was needed to sustain Adam's life, now it was to oppose even Adam's efforts to cultivate his own food. The man was now to struggle for survival. It would be only with sorrow or pain or great stress involving significant physical effort that Adam could continue to sustain his physical life. Sorrows and pains were to become a very distinct part of his physical existence in the earth. The reminder that the days of Adam's physical life were limited, even with struggle, is also included in the Lord God's statement. Not only is sorrow and pain and struggle to characterize Adam's continued physical existence in the earth, but that very existence was now to face an ultimate end. Physical death is, from that day forward, to be an integral part of physical life, not only for Adam, but also for all of his offspring. The soil of the earth itself is now to oppose Adam's efforts to cultivate it. Thorns also and thistles shall it bring forth to thee, and thou shalt eat the herb of the field. Where previously the perfect earth had nurtured only plants that were beneficial to the life of man and his domain, now the imperfect earth was to nurture noxious plants that would compete against those beneficial plants that were, to, that were expected to produce man's food. The Lord God may have created those thorns, thistles, and weeds at that very moment in which he spoke these words, or he may have simply changed the natures of some of the existing plants that were created on the third creation day. But by whatever means that was used, noxious plants did come into being at the time of this pronouncement. They have continued to be a part of the plant kingdom of the earth ever since that time. Thorns came into existence as a result of Adam's sin. The one who came into the world so many years later to pay the penalty for Adam's sin was forced to wear a crown made of these vicious plant spines. In recording the events of the trial and crucifixion of our Lord Jesus Christ, the Apostle John writes, And the soldiers platted a crown of thorns and put it on his head. The crown of thorns stood symbolically for the fact that this God-man, Yahweh Elohim, God the Son come in the flesh, was himself suffering the consequences of that sin of Adam and the sins of all of Adam's race, these consequences that had been brought on the once perfect creation. Thorns and thistles shall it bring forth to thee. And the soldiers platted a crown of thorns and put it on his head. And thou shalt eat the herb of the field. In the sweat of thy face shalt thou eat bread. This is the first place in scripture where the word field is used. This word refers to an area of cultivated ground where grains and vegetable plants are grown. We have here emphasis placed upon the fact that Adam and his race are no longer freely to eat the fruits and vegetables that grow upon those plants that the Lord God himself had planted in the Garden of Eden. 
Adam must now clear, prepare, plant, and cultivate his own section of ground. The strenuous physical labor involved in these efforts will cause perspiration to pour freely from the pores of Adam's flesh. In this condition brought on by his labors, he will consume the fruits of those labors. Notice another change that was brought on by the curse on Adam's dominion. In the sweat of thy face shalt thou eat bread. Bread is not a raw vegetable or a grain of the field. Bread is a product that uses the raw grains of the fields. However, in order for the grains to be converted to bread, a great deal of additional labor is involved. The grain must be harvested and winnowed. It must be ground into flour. Then the flour must be mixed with other ingredients, and the final product must be baked in an oven. Along with the new requirements for strenuous physical labor, we also find that the raw products of the field were not now adequate to supply the energy needs of the laboring man. In the future, he must further labor to prepare himself a food that can supply the additional nourishment that his new tasks in life require. The preparation of bread also brings the woman into the labor picture. She too must labor with her husband if they are to survive in the continuing imperfect earth. But even with their labor, physical death will ultimately win out. For dust thou art, and unto dust shalt thou return. The Lord God's closing words to Adam are a reminder that death extends to the physical domain as well as to the spiritual domain. The Lord God had said, In the day that thou eatest thereof, thou shalt surely die. And now he says, In the sweat of thy face shalt thou eat bread, till thou return unto the ground. Upon the physical death of Adam, his body was destined to return to the ground from which it was taken. In Genesis chapter 2 and verse 7, we read the details of the creation of the first man. And the Lord God formed man of the dust of the ground, and breathed into his nostrils the breath of life, and man became a living soul. That body of the first man was formed from the inorganic materials of the earth's crust. The eternal spirit and the living soul were added to that body, and the first man became a tripartite living being. On physical death, that soul and spirit were to depart from the body, and the body was then destined to decay back to the original materials of which it was formed. Once again, the old clock on the wall tells me that my time is gone. We'll continue with our study of the descent of man on the next broadcast, exactly where we leave off today. Greetings in the name of our Lord and Savior, Jesus the Christ. Welcome to another broadcast of the Bible Stands. Today, we're continuing our study of the descent of man. This is a study of Genesis chapter 3. Let me open this message by reading Genesis chapter 3 and verse 19. In the sweat of thy face shalt thou eat bread, till thou return unto the ground. For out of it wast thou taken, for dust thou art, and unto dust shalt thou return. Nothing in the physical domain of the present fallen creation was to be eternal. Adam's body of clay was no exception. The Lord God emphasized the fact that Adam's physical body was just another part of the dying physical universe when he said, For out of it, that is, out of the ground, wast thou taken, for dust thou art, and unto dust shalt thou return. After this final pronouncement of the Lord God, the judgment scene there in the Garden of Eden came to an end. Presumably the serpent, the physical beast whose body had been used of Satan for the temptation of the woman, slithered away on his belly. This was the form of locomotion that was to characterize him and his descendants after him as long as this present physical creation continued to endure. 
Presumably also the Lord God, God the Son, removed his visible presence from the garden, and for some period of time the fallen man and the fallen woman were left together there after God's presence was removed. This was only a temporary situation, however. This first human pair was not destined to continue to dwell in the Garden of Eden. We must realize that the Garden of Eden was the Holy of Holies of that original perfect world. It was the place that the Lord God had chosen to place his name and his visible presence. Thus, it was a place that could not be inhabited by sinful man. But apparently the exile of Adam and his wife did not come at the very moment that the Lord God left off speaking to Adam. The event that's next described in Genesis chapter 3 and verse 20 seems to have taken place between the judgment scene and the time of the exile of the human pair from the garden. And Adam called his wife's name Eve, because she was the mother of all living. Unto Adam also, and to his wife, did the Lord God make coats of skins and clothe them. Until this time, after the judgment scene before the Lord God in the Garden of Eden, the woman who was Adam's wife had never been given a personal name. Adam had designated her as woman at the time that the Lord God had brought her unto him, just after she had been miraculously formed from a part of his body. In Genesis chapter 2 and verse 23 we read, And Adam said, This is now bone of my bones, and flesh of my flesh. She shall be called woman because she was taken out of man. An unspecified period of time had gone by since that incident in which Adam's life partner had received her husband's designation of woman. For most of this time, the first human pair had dwelt together in a state of innocence in the Garden of Eden. The Lord God, the pre-incarnate Christ, had come daily to the Garden in visible form to fellowship with these first parents of the human race. But sin had come into God's perfect creation. The powerful angel Lucifer had rebelled against God in the heaven of heavens, and many of the other created angels had followed him. In his fall, Lucifer, the angel of light, had become Satan, the adversary. Satan had inhabited the body of the serpent, and in this physical form he had appeared before the woman in the garden. He had succeeded in causing the woman to doubt God and his word, and he had tempted her to yield to those natural appetites within her and to eat of the fruit that God had forbidden to this human pair. She had done so, and then she had given the fruit to her husband. He, without confusion as to the issues, had deliberately chosen to hearken unto the voice of his wife and had proceeded to disobey God. Sin had now entered into the earthly sphere. The Lord God had appeared in the garden in the cool of the day on that very same day that Adam and his wife had eaten of the fruit of the tree of the knowledge of good and evil. He had called Adam and the woman from their hiding place amongst the trees of the garden, and, standing there in visible presence, the Lord God, God the Son, had pronounced judgment on all the participants in this sin against him. In his words to the serpent, the Lord God had directed that certain physiological changes take place in the body of that physical beast. From that day forward, he was to crawl upon his belly, right down in the dust of the earth. To the spirit being that inhabited the serpent's body, the Lord God had promised his ultimate defeat by the coming seed of woman. And in this promise, he had opened up a gleam of hope for the now spiritually dead man and woman, and thus for the entire human race that was to spring from them. The Lord God, in his grace, was someday to send a Redeemer into the world. The Redeemer would be born of woman without the participation of a human father. 
he would crush the head of the serpent and thus open up a way of life to spiritually dead mankind. The Lord God's sentence upon the woman had also produced physiological changes to her body, emotional changes to her emotional nature, and a definite designation of her subordinate role in the continuing family relationship. The physiological changes were directed to her reproductive organs. These changes were such as to greatly intensify the pain that she was to experience as she brought children into the world. They also were to significantly increase the number of times during her lifespan when she would be capable of conceiving children. She was given a strong emotional attachment to her husband, and she was told that he was to have authority over her. The Lord God's sentence upon the man extended to the entire dominion that had been given to him. The Lord God had said, Cursed is the earth for thy sake. The law of death that now ruled over Adam was extended to the entire physical creation. In its new state, the earth itself was to oppose Adam's efforts to sustain his physical life. He would now have to labor for the food that was necessary for the nourishment of himself and his family. The earth would thereafter bring forth noxious plants, which would oppose the growth of the beneficial plants. But in spite of all of Adam's efforts, physical death was to eventually claim him. For dust thou art, and unto dust shalt thou return. It is as the man and woman are left alone under the sentence of physical death that we read, and Adam called his wife's name Eve, because she was the mother of all living. The name Eve means life. At this time, when a sentence of death had just been placed over the entire physical creation, Adam called the name of his wife life. Why would he pick this name at a time when that particular name seems so inappropriate? There were several reasons why Adam chose this name. The most significant one is that Adam recognized and believed the implication of the Lord God's words to the evil spirit personality who inhabited the body of the serpent. The Lord God had said, I will put enmity between thee and the woman, and between thy seed and her seed. He shall bruise thy head, and thou shalt bruise his heel. The Lord God had promised that one born of woman, the seed of woman, would bruise the serpent's head. He would destroy that source of the poison of death. He would come into the world and reverse the law of death that had become a part of the physical creation as a result of Adam's transgression. In essence, Eve stood there as the mother of the humanity of the one who would bring life to those chosen ones of the dead children of Adam, to those who would simply put their trust in him. The Apostle John writes of the living word, our Lord Jesus Christ, in John chapter 1 and verse 4. In him was life, and the life was the light of men. Adam was the father of death, but Eve, as the mother of all humanity, including the seed of woman, was the mother of life. And Adam called his wife's name Life, because she was the mother of all living. But in addition to this most significant meaning of Genesis chapter 3 and verse 20, there are some other things that should be noticed also. It was Adam who named his wife. In the Oriental cultures of the Bible lands, the privilege of naming something belongs to the one who has dominion over it. God named the day and the night, the land and the sea, the heavenly bodies, and the man Adam. But God had given Adam dominion over the earth and the things in it. Therefore God permitted him to name the animals. In the Lord God's pronouncement to the woman, he had said, concerning her husband, He shall rule over thee. So, as a result of this, it was now appropriate for Adam to give his wife a personal name. There's still another very practical point 
that's made by this verse. And Adam called his wife's name Eve because she was the mother of all living. Once again, we have a specific declaration in Scripture that all human life sprang from Adam and Eve. The idea of a pre-Adamic race that had evolved from the lower animals is totally destroyed by this scriptural statement. If Eve was the mother of all living, then she had to be the mother of the wife of Cain as well as of Cain himself, Cain's wife, and most likely the wives of some of the other sons of Adam was and were daughters of Adam and Eve. Cain married one of his sisters. His wife is one of the daughters of Adam that are mentioned in Genesis chapter 5 and verse 4. God had made no law against the intermarriage of brothers and sisters at that time. In fact, he made no such law until the time of Moses. Abraham's wife was his half-sister. It was absolutely necessary for at least one brother to marry one sister if the human race was to spring from just one single pair of parents. Scripture declares that the race did all come from Adam and Eve. And Adam called his wife's name Eve because she was the mother of all living. Once again, my time is gone. We'll continue our study of the descent of man, our study of Genesis chapter 3, on the next broadcast. Thank you for tuning in to today's broadcast of the Independent Faith Ministry of the Bible Stands. It's so good to greet you once again in the name of our Lord and Savior, Jesus the Christ. For the past several weeks, we've been involved in a detailed study of Genesis chapter 3. We've tackled an age-old problem that finds its only solution in the Holy Scriptures. The problem of the existence of evil in a world created by a holy, loving God is one that has exercised the minds and hearts of philosophers and theologians through the ages. If God is omnipotent and holy, why does he permit such things? How indeed could evil have ever appeared at all? These questions do not have easy answers. Atheism is largely based on the pessimistic belief that such an evil world does prove either that God is not good, condoning evil as he does, or not omnipotent and therefore unable to correct and remove the evil. Dualism, the ancient philosophy of the Gnostics, tried to solve the problem by proposing an eternal principle of evil in the universe as well as one of good. However, Answers such as these are not scriptural, nor do they satisfy the needs of the human heart. God is omnipotent, and he is perfectly righteous. Only through his revelation, therefore, are we able to understand the source and significance of evil in the world. To obtain this understanding, we've gone to the very pivot of the Bible, Genesis chapter 3. We're considering the true story of the entrance of sin into the world as we continue this study on the descent of man. To open today's message, let me read Genesis chapter 3, verses 20 and 21. And Adam called his wife's name Eve, because she was the mother of all living. Unto Adam also, and to his wife, did the Lord God make coats of skins, and clothe them. Unto Adam also, and to his wife, did the Lord God make coats of skins, and clothe them. This is one of the most significant verses of Scripture. We're told that it was the Lord God himself who fashioned the coats of animal skins and clothed the first parents of the human race. The Lord God, in his grace, reached out to this fallen pair, and he, by his own effort, prepared fit coverings for those naked bodies. In this historical event, 
we see the picture of God's salvation by His grace alone bestowed upon those who believe His word and His promises. It's quite significant that this statement telling of the Lord God's grace and His supplying of those skin coats for Adam and Eve immediately follows the record of Adam's naming of his wife. We were told that Adam called his wife's name Life because she was the mother of all living. Although this statement most definitely makes the point that the woman Eve was the mother of the entire human race, it has much deeper significance than just that. When Adam called his wife's name Life, he was considering the promise that the Lord God had made earlier in that garden judgment scene. The Lord God had said, And I will put enmity between thee and the woman, and between thy seed and her seed. He shall bruise thy head, and thou shalt bruise his heel. The Lord God had promised to send a Redeemer into the world, and that Redeemer would take on the flesh of humanity by the medium of the woman's body. This one who would bruise the serpent's head was to provide spiritual life to a race that had become spiritually dead, and that was under the curse of sin. Through the work of the seed of woman, God would provide spiritual life to a new creation of mankind, a second creation of men and women who would come into the world by the process of natural birth in the marred and fallen image of Adam, but who would be transformed into the image of the seed of woman himself by simple faith in him. In figure, since Eve was the mother of the entire human race, she was also the mother of the seed of woman. This made her the mother of life. Thus, Adam felt it appropriate to name her Life because, as he reasoned, she was the mother of all living. In other words, she was the mother of the head of the new creation, which was a creation unto life. When Adam called his wife's name Eve because she was the mother of all living, we can know that Adam believed God's promise that the seed of woman was to be sent and that he would provide the means to spiritual life. The act of believing God's promise is an act of faith. Both Adam and his wife believed God, and we can know from subsequent scripture that the simple act of placing one's faith in God's promise is all that's required to receive God's saving grace. In Genesis chapter 15 and verse 6, we read of Abraham, And he believed in the Lord, and he, the Lord, counted, imputed it to him for righteousness. Subsequently, in the Apostle Paul's great treatise on justification by faith found in the book of Romans, we discover that Abraham's belief that the Lord would fulfill his promise is the conscious act that resulted in the salvation of this father of the Hebrew nation. In Romans chapter 4 and verse 3, Paul writes, For what saith the scriptures? Abraham believed God, and it was counted unto him for righteousness. Adam and Eve believed God. They believed that the Lord God would fulfill his promise that the seed of woman would come and that he would bruise the head of the serpent. So we can paraphrase the Apostle Paul and say, Adam and Eve believed God and it was counted unto them for righteousness. We can know that the first parents of the human race, that man and that woman who committed the original sin, were saved by the grace of the very God whose law they had transgressed. Genesis chapter 3 and verse 21 simply tells us of the outward manifestation of God's grace. And unto Adam also, and to his wife, did the Lord God make coats of skins and clothe them. 
When Adam and his wife were in the state in which they were created, in a state of innocence before God, their physical bodies needed no covering other than that outward visible manifestation of the inward spiritual life that they possessed. In Genesis chapter 2, verse 25, we're told of this situation. And they were both naked, the man and his wife, and were not ashamed. Apparently, this outward manifestation of inward spiritual life was in the form of a glory covering of light, such as Scripture has subsequently described as being the covering of angels who appear in the earthly scene. This was also the covering of the Lord God, God the Son himself, when he, on several occasions, appeared in glorified physical form. When Adam and his wife transgressed God's law, they died spiritually. With spiritual death, the glory coverings of those naked human bodies were no longer present. In Genesis 3 and verse 7, we found this most significant statement concerning the immediate results of the eating of the fruit of the tree of the knowledge of good and evil. And the eyes of them both were opened, and they knew that they were naked. And they sewed fig leaves together and made themselves aprons. With the coming of spiritual death, there also came immediate awareness of physical nakedness. The man and woman saw that they were no longer fit to stand in one another's presence. They knew that they were certainly not fit to stand in the presence of the Lord God. So they attempted to remedy the situation. They sewed fig leaves together and made themselves aprons. These fig leaf aprons were the works of their own hands. Dead hands cannot do living works. The fig leaf aprons made the two acceptable in one another's sight, but they were not acceptable in the sight of the Lord God. Those aprons represented man's best efforts to save himself by his own works. However, there is no salvation in the works of natural man. The wages of sin is death, and without the shedding of blood there is no remission. The fig trees did not die when they furnished the leaves for the aprons. Those aprons were not a work of God. The fig leaf aprons were totally inadequate for making this fallen, spiritually dead man and woman acceptable in God's presence. But in Adam's demonstration of his faith in the Lord God and in his word that is shown out in his naming of his wife Eve, or life, then the Lord God himself extended his grace to these spiritually dead and physically naked first parents. They were saved by his grace. He provided a spiritual covering, atonement, for their sin. With this, he also provided a physical covering for their naked bodies as an outward manifestation that their faith had made them acceptable in his sight. Unto Adam also, and to his wife, the Lord God made coats of skins and clothed them. Animals had to die in order that their skins might be made available to cover the bodies of the first man and woman. Without the shedding of blood, there is no remission of sin. The animals from which the skins were taken died so that the man and the woman might live before God. The animals represented a substitute, and as such, they pointed toward the true Lamb of God that taketh away the sin of the world, the seed of woman, our Lord Jesus Christ. The first physical deaths in the earthly sphere were the deaths of those animals which furnished the skins of covering to Adam and to Eve. We can probably assume that it was the man and woman who slew these animals. They offered the first bloody sacrifices as they slew those innocent beasts before the Lord God. Then the Lord God himself took the skins and fashioned the coats that were to stand as the coverings, as the atonement for the original sin. The animal substitute could only furnish a covering. The sin could not be taken away until the seed of woman himself died on a Roman cross. 
But for the first parents of the human race, the Lord God made coats of skin and clothed them. New life had come from God. Once again, the old clock on the wall tells me that my time is gone. We'll conclude our study of The Descent of Man, our study of Genesis chapter 3, on the next broadcast. in the name of our Lord and Savior, Jesus the Christ. Welcome to today's broadcast of The Bible Stands. It's a real privilege to come into your home or your car or your place of business with this message from God's Word. For the past several weeks, we've been involved in a study of Genesis chapter 3. I call this study, The Descent of Man. To open this final message of the series, let me read Genesis chapter 3, verses 22 through 24. And the Lord God said, Behold, the man is become as one of us, to know good and evil. And now, lest he put forth his hand, and take also of the tree of life, and eat, and live forever. Therefore the Lord God sent him forth from the garden of Eden, to till the ground from whence he was taken. So he drove out the man, and he placed at the east of the garden of Eden cherubims, and a flaming sword, which turned every way to keep the way of the tree of life. As we read these closing three verses of the third chapter of Genesis, we are once again, by the revelation of God's Holy Spirit, privileged to witness an internal counsel of the triune Godhead. It was in Genesis chapter 1 and verse 26 that we first heard the voices of the three persons of God as we reached that momentous point in the sixth creation day just before the first man Adam and the entire human race in his seed was formed by the creative power of the Lord God, Yahweh Elohim, God the Son. At that point, the Almighty Three in One were heard to say, Let us make man in our image, after our likeness, and let them have dominion over the fish of the sea, and over the fowl of the air, and over the cattle, and over all the earth, and over every creeping thing that creepeth upon the earth. In Genesis 1.26, the specific person of God who spoke these words was not identified. We can know only that we were privileged to hear the internal proceedings of the highest counsel of all as these words were recorded by the Spirit of God for our benefit and blessing. But in these latter words from the counsel of the Divine Trinity, we are told that it was the voice of Yahweh Elohim, the Lord God, who is God the Son, the pre-incarnate Christ, that said, Behold, the man is become as one of us, to know good and evil. And now, lest he put forth his hand, and take also of the tree of life, and eat, and live forever. The man and the woman, Adam and Eve, the first parents of the human race, had failed the test of righteousness that God had provided for them. They had eaten of the fruit of the tree of the knowledge of good and evil in express violation of the Lord God's commandment not to eat of it. As a result, they died spiritually. They became sinners, and they were separated from the God who had created them. The image and likeness of God in which Adam was created was marred and distorted, and Adam and the wife who had been taken from his body were no longer fit for eternal life in the presence of God. The Lord God had come into the garden meeting place, and he had pronounced judgment upon this man and this woman, and also upon the evil spirit personality which had inhabited the serpent's body for the temptation of the woman. Not only Adam and the race that he was the father, but also the entire physical universe, Adam's domain, was placed under a sentence of death. But in his pronouncement to the serpent, 
and to the wicked angel within the serpent, the Lord God had promised that someday one born of woman was to come into the earthly sphere to undo the damage that had been triggered by the temptation of the woman. The seed of woman was to bruise the head of the serpent. He was to bring life out of death. He was to redeem the creation from the law of death into which it had been sold. In verse 20, we found that Adam and his wife had believed this promise of the Lord God. They had placed their trust in God's word when he had spoken of the coming Redeemer. Adam's faith was displayed in the fact that he called his wife's name Eve. The word means life, because she was the mother of all living. He believed that Eve was at the head of the chain of womanhood that would eventually bring the seed of woman into the world. Because of this, she was the mother of the new creation unto life, just as he was the father of the old creation unto death. Adam exercised faith in God and in his word. Just as in the case of Abraham, he believed God, and it was counted unto him for righteousness. The Lord God himself took the skins of animals that had been slain as the representative substitutes for the sinful man and woman, and he had made them coats of those skins to cover their naked bodies. Those skin coats were the outward visible manifestations of the spiritual coverings that the Lord God, in his grace, had formed to cover their sins from his sight. Adam and Eve had been saved by God's grace through their faith in him, but the damage of their sins had not been undone. They still had the fallen sinful nature which had become a part of their makeup at the moment of their transgression against God. God's saving grace had provided them with a new spiritual nature, but the sinful nature had not been destroyed. The eating of the fruit of the tree of the knowledge of good and evil had given them experimental knowledge of evil. And that experimental knowledge of evil was to remain until physical death separated the soul and spirit from the body and thus removed this pair from the realm of the polluted physical creation. Only physical death could make the work of regeneration complete. The physical creation was dying and the physical parts of the man and the woman must die with it in order that the Lord God could eventually raise them up to eternal life in the new creation. Therefore, the Lord God spoke within the eternal counsels of the Godhead. Behold, the man has become as one of us to know good and evil. And now, lest he put forth his hand and take also of the tree of life and eat and live forever. The man Adam and his wife were still within the Garden of Eden. It was in the midst of this garden that both the tree of the knowledge of good and evil and the tree of life stood. The eating of the fruit of the tree of life evidently would have stopped the ravages of the curse as far as the physical bodies of Adam and Eve were concerned. If this had taken place, then the two would have lived forever with those sin natures that were a part of their fallen makeup. This would have placed them beyond the redemptive work of God. They would have lived eternally with experimental evil still a part of their natural makeup. This is why that God the Son spoke those words to God the Father and God the Holy Spirit. It was necessary that these first parents be physically separated from the tree of life. They were as gods. They knew good, but they also knew evil. Their two natures were capable of knowing both experimental good and experimental evil. It would have been a disaster of the first magnitude for the man and the woman to have eternal physical life in this condition. So, therefore, the Lord God sent him, Adam, forth from the Garden of Eden to till the ground from whence he was taken. Adam was not formed of the materials of the earth that were found within the confines of the Garden of Eden itself. 
We were told in Genesis chapter 2 that the Garden of Eden was planted eastward of this spot. It was the Lord God himself who originally had placed Adam in the Garden of Eden. Now it was the Lord God himself who removed Adam from this paradise and placed him back in the spot in which he was originally formed. He was to till the ground there, just as the Lord God had told him in the pronouncement against him. In the sweat of thy face shalt thou eat bread, till thou return unto the ground. For out of it wast thou taken, for dust thou art, and unto dust shalt thou return. The remainder of Adam's physical life was to be spent outside the Garden of Eden, tilling the very field of ground from which his body was taken. So he, the Lord God, drove out the man, and he placed at the east of the Garden of Eden cherubims, and a flaming sword which turned every way to keep the way of the tree of life. The man Adam, his wife, and all of his descendants of the pre-flood world were denied access to the Garden of Eden and to the tree of life that stood in it. This holy of holies of that world was supernaturally guarded by the cherubim, a specific order of angels of the heaven of heavens. The flaming sword which turned every way was no doubt visibly present to all those of the pre-flood world who approached that geographical region of the original earth. Redemption had not yet been accomplished. Physical access to the meeting place of the Lord God and to the tree of life had to be denied to fallen man. The Garden of Eden was a real geographical place. It remained present on the earth up until the time of the great flood. At that time it was covered by the great universal sea. Most likely this region of the earth's surface was not raised again from the bottom of the sea when God lifted the continents of the post-flood earth. This paradise garden now lies at the bottom of one of the present world's great oceans. During our age, there are no visible manifestations of the Lord God's original presence in the earthly sphere. We who are Adam's descendants have inherited the legacy that he left for us. It's a legacy of death. But we are not devoid of hope. The Lord God kept that promise made so many years ago there in the garden judgment scene. In the fullness of time, the seed of woman came into this sin-polluted world. And the Word was made flesh and dwelt among us, and we beheld His glory, the glory as of the only begotten of the Father, full of grace and truth. This Redeemer died the death of the cross. He was placed in the garden tomb. But after three days, God raised Him from the dead according to the predictions of the ancient scriptures. But now is Christ risen from the dead and become the firstfruits of them that slept. He died for our sins. He was resurrected for our justification. For since by man came death, by man came also the resurrection of the dead. For as in Adam all die, even so in Christ shall all be made alive. The first man is of the earth, earthy. The second man is the Lord from heaven. As is the earthy, such are they also that are earthy. And as is the heavenly, such are they also that are heavenly. And as we have borne the image of the earthy, we shall also bear the image of the heavenly. My time is gone. I've been greatly blessed in bringing you this series of messages on the descent of man. Oh, my Lord. Oh, my Lord.